0: All right, Todd,
1: you know what you're in for? No, I have no idea, but I can't wait. You're ready to go the distance here, right? Stay up all night? Whatever you guys need out of me. Wow, famous last words.
2: Welcome to Coach Your Brains Out. I'm Billy Allen. I'm John Mayer.
1: And I'm Andrew Fuller. And today we are joined by the one and only Todd Rogers He doesn't need much of an intro, but we're going to do one anyway. UCSB Gaucho, 1997 AVP Rookie of the Year. I was in 7th grade. 2008 gold medalist in the Olympic Games with Phil Dahlhauser. 2007 world champion, which is a big deal. Current head coach for the Cal Poly women's beach volleyball team. The owner of some amazing chickens on the central coast with eggs with the orangest yolks I've ever seen. <laughs> he has horses but avoids them, and he rates himself as a double A wine connoisseur. Wow. Todd, we're happy to have you here. Wow.
3: Thanks guys. Nice job. Appreciate Andrew. that intro, Andrew. Yeah. Very kind. It's like a mini geeter. <laughs> yeah. Uh, much taller geeter. Sorry, big geeter. Yeah.
1: Uh so Todd we asked you to come in here to cyberspace with us to talk about the right-side approach specifically. We'll, we'll meander a little bit, but, but that's the main topic. John, you want to hit him with the first question about that?
0: Let's start really basic for people who aren't clear on what an approach even is. An approach is our four steps. It's right, left, right, left. Are we all good with that?
1: For a right-hander.
0: For a right-hander. Okay, so a four-step approach would be right, left, right, left. So, I guess, Todd, you have, um, I think, kind of a unique approach. I was wondering where you learned it, how you learned it, how you got to the point uh, to approach the way you do.
3: Uh, Well, I was originally taught way back in the day that when you hit a five indoors, a backside set, right side, and you come straight down the line as a right-handed player, and you meet that ball, and you either go straight over the top down the line, or you're hitting cross-body. And... That's kind of how I first thought of the approach, and I found after experimenting with a couple of different approaches that for me, I was much better off when I just got wherever I passed to and came straight in. Because every time I, even to this day, when I stay too far outside uh, and I let the ball come in to my more to my left hand as though I was a left-handed player, I just I struggle. I get in the weeds. I, I get blocked. I. I basically am not as good. And, and so after essentially a year of playing with Sean Scott and figuring that stuff out, I realized I really needed to work hard in the beginning to sh- straighten out my approach, come straight in, have him set me a nice high set straight up and down, uh, which I also found to be a very easy set to set. So that's kind of the, the beginning of how I crafted that straight in approach for me.
0: And then when do you take your first step, your right step? What tells you to start it?
3: So uh, I would I'd pass the ball, and let's assume that it's a, you know, a good pass up to the net, plenty of height, setter can get there with the hands. Uh, I move to my spot, what I call my spot at least. I don't necessarily stop. like I don't stop my approach entirely. I'm still kind of moving a little bit forward. For me, I would say I probably start my approach, if I'm doing it correctly, a little bit after the ball has gone away from the setter's hands. So I'm kind of taking that first step, and if it's really high, then I may slow that first step down a little bit and then speed up um, the next three. Uh, If it's perfect, then I should be right in rhythm.
2: Okay. Is your spot in relation to where the setter is, or is it always in a certain spot on the court?
3: Relation to where I pass, which is basically where the setter is. And what's your movement? So after you pass the ball,
0: so you move with the setter, how do you move? Do you cross over? Do you shuffle? I don't know what we want to call that, like your pre-approach approach. approach. (laughs) Is that the right word?
3: Uh, Yeah. yeah. As soon as I pass the ball, especially if, let's say, I pass it way left of where I would normally pass it, say the middle or straight ahead, I hustle with crossover steps to get there, I would say. If it's I pass it and all it takes is just one easy step away, I I I think that's always going to be a a variable there because it's dependent on where you serve. You serve me high, deep to my corner – You know, I got to come back and then pass the ball forward and I'm going to take multiple crossover steps to get wherever I need to get versus if you hit me with a jump serve right in my lap and I pass it perfect, I'm probably literally going to hop step a step ahead of me and I should be in the right spot, roughly.
0: Uh, Let's talk about the uh, the speed of your approach. You kind of touched on it, but so right after the setter sets it, you're starting, you're walking, you're, what's that first step like? Slow very
3: slow it's a it's that yeah it's very slow it's it's a hesitant kind of okay let's see how high is that do I need to adjust I mean it can speed up if if it's a lot lower set than I expected uh, but it's usually a kind of a slow transition step into where I need to be uh, I'm a big believer in those last two steps I'm sure you guys are too half those are the explosive ones and really the ones that matter I've even tweaked with just A three-step approach if I pass the ball perfect um, in the past. But generally speaking, four steps is a little bit better because you can make a little bit more adjustments, especially with a higher set.
0: I see a lot of players on the beach who after they pass, they start really fast and then you end up slow. And I think you're one of the ones who has done it better than anybody, started slow and finished fast, which is what we want to do. Then you can hit or shoot. Did that take you time to develop that or...
3: Is that something that just came naturally, being able to start slow? Uh, I think that came naturally. In fact, when I get in trouble is when I, I rush. When I rush my approach, all of a sudden, I'm exactly what you talked talking about. I'm, I'm underneath the ball, um, or I have to slow my approach down, and all of a sudden, I lose however many inches on my jump. So it's kind of, I think I've just always kind of naturally done a slow to fast. So what it's always been told that I should do, um, you know, go slow to fast first step or two is literally a step where you're trying to make sure you're in the right position where your last, you know, right, left is a real explosive movement uh, so that you can maximize your arm swing, your jump, etc.
0: Do you have any uh, cues that help you recognize when you're under the ball or when you're finishing slow? Is there something you're like, oh, I, I don't know, this is what all right, I recognize this. So now I know I have to slow down at the beginning next time.
3: I I can tell you after every single approach, if I did it right or wrong, my my cues are, I can just tell, like, I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't get up and snap a ball off. And I don't jump as high as I, as I did, obviously being significantly older than say like 10 years ago, but yeah, I I can tell the difference. My line shots lower, it's easier to touch or swat or run down. So after every time and I usually, I'll tell my partner, whoever that is, Hey, tell me to wait, whatever, um, just tell me to do something, which is essentially me telling myself to do something. Uh, but every little bit helps, I guess.
1: Todd, when you, were, when you transitioned over to the right with Sean and you were in that kind of year-long process of figuring out playing on the right, were you watching video of yourself? Did you have someone kind of checking things out for you? What was that process like for you?
3: I didn't have anyone checking anything out for me uh, In for the most part. I did do a little bit of video, not a lot, uh, but I did a, a watch a little bit of video. But it was kind of more, to be honest with you, a trial by fire. Kind of just go out there and go over it, over it, over it. Uh, kind of experiment with a few different types of approaches. Work on the shots, the hits or whatnot, uh, and kind of craft it. That first year was a struggle. Uh, and the biggest thing I found right off the bat was, I really got to focus on getting a good pass because you got to create crafty shots when you don't have that good pass as a right-handed player coming
1: over your shoulder. Yeah, and so you've kind of found the thing that works for you, coming straight in, kicking in when you need to, but usually not moving out at all. Right, rarely ever.
3: I mean, if it's really, really, really windy, crosswind, yeah. um, I, I will kick out a step or two just because almost every ball... And I'm better off when I'm inside than I am
1: way outside. If I get way outside, I'm in the weeds. Yeah. And so you you got your thing. And then there are definitely other players who like kicking out wide. Casey Jennings and yep. Misty had a little kick out with a skip. So when you're coaching your program at Cal Poly, are you helping those players kind of work through it? Are you giving them like a little menu saying like, try this. This is one way to do it. This is another way. Or are you kind of prescribing... An overall general footwork plan for left-siders and right-siders? I I give them multiple choices.
3: So I give them A, B, C, and I will use exactly the people that you mentioned. I use myself as an example of how I like to approach. Uh, I will use Casey um, and sometimes a little bit misty, but Casey's is the most obvious, pretty far kick out. Uh, But he does a fantastic job of getting his feet to ball uh, and getting his you know, his right shoulder onto that ball and not being way inside or way to the right. I'm not a big, as a coach, I'm not a big proponent of it's my way or the highway. This is the way I, I, you should do it. You know, I've crafted what works for me, but some people like a higher set. Some people like a lower set. Some people like the ball to cross from left to right and need that kind of outside approach and allow that left to right cross. Uh, you know Billy I think you probably like that a little bit it seems to me you, you like that little bit of a loft so that you p- can pick it off where you want to pick it off for me I've tried that I've tried a, even a uh, a shoot set I don't know if you guys remember Martin LaSiga from uh, Switzerland he used to run a shoot set with his brother and I don't know how he did it but I tried it and was terrible at it I couldn't see a thing so just you know kind of a trial by error and for my girls, I'll, I'll let them try all of the above and see which one is working for them and just kind of discuss it. And if they say, hey, I really like that straight up and down, well, let's focus on that. Or I, I feel like I need a little bit of a loft, more like I'm hitting a five indoors. Okay, then let's let's focus on that and let's make sure your partner knows that.
2: You're definitely known for having great vision on the court. Is that something that's you've always had? Um, how did you develop that? Was there a learning curve when you were working on looking and maybe your approach wasn't as successful?
3: It uh, was a huge learning curve when I played with Sean that first year. It was a, it was pretty much a struggle. I felt like I was really good if the ball was right in front of me. And I passed it well, and then Sean gave me a good set. I feel like I, I could see things. I had good vision. But as soon as the ball got 10 feet off or more, I felt like I was completely blind and, and 100% reliant on Sean's shot call uh, or just my own guess. So I, I really kind of had to start really focusing on trying to Take a look. And as much as I can, I try, and I struggle with this still, But and I teach, don't drop your head. Most of us drop our heads pretty gnarly. Take a look and then go back to the ball. I've always tried. And when I'm on my game entirely, you actually won't see my head drop most of the time. My eyes will drop down to where the blocker defender are, uh, but my eyes will then go back. And my thought process on that is it takes longer for your head to go down And back up than it does for your eyes. Your eyes can move a hell of a lot quicker than your heavy head, (laughs) basically. Uh, So if you can get to that point where all you're doing is looking, you're quicker at it. You can look later because your eyes can get back to the ball quicker. And also, you're not giving a tell to the other players. They don't see you look. They think most people, when they don't look, Swing. So all of a sudden you see that they're in the angle, they've come into the angle hard because they think you're going to swing and you make an easy line shot because you've seen them do that. Uh, So those factors are what I have worked on very hard to try and get. I still lose them at times. uh, And it's what I tell my Cal Poly girls, hey, this is what I'd like you to try and do. It's hard though. It took me a couple years to to be able to do that well.
2: And what points do you look on your approach? And is it more than one?
3: Uh, I look after I pass the ball. Just a quick little you know cursory, where are they where's the defender going to? Is he setting up over at the line? Is he setting up in the angle? Is he just waiting in the middle of the court? And then I try and look as I am
1: exploding off the sand. So two. Yes, two. Billy, do you feel like what Todd was saying particularly
2: I do I do five look.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Do you feel like that particularly resonates with you with your head being so large?
2: Yes. (laughs) it takes a lot of energy
0: (laughs) (laughs) so when you're you know when you're really clicking with your vision what does it look like like what are you seeing are you seeing is the blocker clear is the defender clear what are you looking for
3: when everything is is on yeah i'm seeing the blocker i'm seeing the defender and i'm looking late enough that actually when the blocker is making a you know, if he's making a a four move or a three move, he's setting up in the line and jumping into the angle, or the defender's making a really late move to the line or whatever that is, I can actually see that because I'm looking so late for them to be able to take off. I mean, it's one of those, and it doesn't happen that often, quite frankly, uh, and rarely ever happens nowadays, (laughs) but I always, I used to feel like, all right, do I want to, I, I had options, I had two or three options, oh, I see I can cut this ball, that's wide open, or I can Absolutely unload on this line because this blocker's diving in, uh, and, and it was pretty kind of fun when you ha- felt like you had literally options. Where instead of oh, I see it's a line block and angle dig, uh, I got to blast it at the angle blocker or try and shoot a line shot. It literally was like, all right, I'm gonna chop this one out in front of them. I can blast it at the defender. I can go over the line shot uh, if I make it look kind of like I'm going a line shot. That blocker is going to go up with me and I can slap it underneath them. And literally that went through the
1: head as you're going up, which option you wanted to choose. Todd, I've never felt any of those things. <laughs> Sorry to hear that. From We've you. seen you play. <laughs> That's
2: why you're coaching, Andrew. Uh,
0: do what I say, not what I do. So if you, if you were going to pick one, so if you're training, especially younger players, if you're going to pick that you know, you're going to train that they had good vision or good relationship to the ball, relationship to the ball, meaning the balls in front of them, um, and their arms extended and they can hit it with range. Is one of those better on the beach, more important that you prioritize?
3: I would prioritize the second actually over vision. Uh, I think vision is a, is a secondary process to that. I don't, I don't think it's one that you could choose because if you're if the ball's all over the place, you're going to have to take your eyes off of whatever you're looking at. Um, if you're not getting feet to ball or you're, you're contacting the ball way out in front of you or behind your head or to the side. Uh, so I would say, you know, feet to ball, you know, get up in the air, reaching high, uh, and then add that vision piece.
0: You talked about if your approach is good, you'll have vision. But what if it's a bad set? Like, how do you, are you able to tell like, oh, that was just you know, it wasn't the right set or maybe it was my approach was off. I don't know. Isn't there a little bit of gray area there? I'm wondering how you can tell the difference.
3: There is a little bit of a gray area. However, if it's a bad set, you're, you're going to be working more to get your feet to the ball. Um, I think it's going to be harder to take a, a later look. So you're going to have to take an earlier look which I think you can distinguish that as going, at least in my brain, I can say to myself, okay, I needed that set to be XYZ, uh, higher, tighter, more inside, more outside, whatever it was. I don't know if that necessarily answers your your question that you're asking, uh, but it's kind of, I don't know, I I can tell the difference when I'm doing it. Uh, The the hard part will be, can I tell the difference when I'm coaching it to someone and and recognize that right now. That's not really a difficulty because right now most of my kids can't see Jack Diddley squat. So, um, (laughs) it's kind of, until we get to the right point until we can actually go down that road. It's pretty, it's pretty cut and dry right now.
0: Do you have an ideal passing spot that helps you with your vision and your approach? Is there a spot like before the play, you're like, this is where I want to put the ball.
3: Yeah. uh, middle of the court to about five or six feet to if if I'm facing the net to the right. Okay. That would be right in that spot, is my, it would be relatively speaking a fairly sweet spot.
0: And if you pass off the net, how does your approach change? Do you get wider? Do you stay closer?
3: No, I, I get wider because, uh, you know, being right handed, getting closer, the ball is literally coming straight over the head. Uh, so I, I take more of an approach like a, a Casey Jennings or someone like that where I, have to, I do have to kick out a little bit. And then really work hard to get my feet to the ball, you know, get my left foot, close that left foot with the, le- the hip and the shoulder and get underneath it and then come into a position where I can be, contact the ball as high a point as I can and still use a little quick, quick look as well.
0: I think that's the reason why some people train to go outside in on the right, especially out of system, but even in system. If you go outside in, it's easier to get all four of your steps towards the set. If that makes sense. So like my right step and left step are going to go a little bit inside. Like I know the set's going to be that way. When you approach more straight in, especially if you're not with as good a setter, I think there's more variability. The set could be inside or outside. So your, your approach could end up not all going towards the set. Does that make sense?
3: No, it, it absolutely makes sense actually. But if you think about who the guys that I have played with, Sean Scott, great setter. Phil Dalhauser, great setter. You know, and then when I played with with Ryan and Theo, I mean, Ryan has become a much better setter um, over the years. Um, Theo has actually now is a, is a better setter. Theo, not so much. <laughs> he watches this religiously, he was telling me. So you might want to retake that. <laughs> um, no, Theo, I mean, Theo has actually gotten a lot better. When, when I played with him, he was probably one of the worst setters I'd ever played with. Um, and I really had to, work hard to do all the right things and I did I actually changed my approach a little bit that year I started kicking out wider and actually kind of pre taking almost pulling my right foot forward and starting with me almost facing Theo rather than square to the net and I found I was more effective with that because I could get my feet to more balls and his variability was pretty large as far as the window he was setting Stafford set sauce um, so not an issue there so, yeah, I was I was fortunate. For 10 years, I played with guys that could just set almost perfect every time.
0: Yeah, I think the way you passed the ball helped, too.
3: And I realized that that first year with Sean. You know, I mean, I, I, I was better. He was better. Everyone was better when I passed the ball, you know, within 10 feet of the net and could take my normal approach straight in. I could see better. And that's where, you know, my little chop down the line thing, uh, it would kind of develop because it, I always felt like it was there if I took that approach. Whereas if I take an outside-in approach, I feel like that a lot of times that becomes a lower, lower chop and more blockable or, and more air-prone. So
0: Andrew has a story about your shot. I, I don't think too many people have a shot named after them. Yours is the Raji.
2: There's the Stein, right, the Pokey. And then there's the Wankner the wink, which is hitting a perfect set in the bottom of the net
0: <laughs> roger doesn't know that one he's not uh, as famous it's... but uh that shot frustrated blockers and defenders for and it still does for 15 years uh i'm trying to think of a play that is less defendable it's like the defender is out of it and the
2: the blocker's out of it and you don't have to hit it that hard uh, It was a big time shot as defenders, we assume the blockers should be pretty easy to block, but somehow it always goes around them. Yeah. It's like, you know it's coming. You know it's coming. Block that ball. Use your left Don't hand. Don't
0: let him hit the line. <laughs> somehow it always worked. But Andrew has a story about your famous shot.
1: Let's hear it. All right. So we're at the AVP in Santa Barbara. I'm driving Lauren, my future wife, John, and his wife, Paula. Uh, in my minivan. Like a
0: 96 min- minivan.
1: Okay. <laughs> Hold on. It was a 2001.
0: Uh, it looked like a 96.
1: All right. 2001 Plymouth Voyager. <laughs> wow. So, we're, we're driving on Cabrillo. And I asked John, hey, do you know what a Raji is? He's like, yeah, I know what a Raji is. i like, do you know what a Raji is when you're driving? And... <laughs> what? God. <laughs> Coming up on Chapala Street, I take a really quick, hard right turn, and I dented the rear right wheel so bad, it made the loudest noise. I think Paolo was terrified. How
0: much did it cost
1: you? I can't remember, but I was scared driving back. I thought I was going to die. I picture
2: Andrew driving, seeing a parking spot, all of a sudden, Raji! Raji! (laughs) that's exactly how it was
1: that's pretty much exactly what happened
2: (laughs) and it was
0: so unsmooth it was not a Raji it was a hitting error
1: (laughs) oh I Raji'd way out of bounds yeah it was like the worst Raji so was that like a a a
3: pre-thought-out thing you were gonna do or was that a spot of the moment
1: (laughs) no I didn't have vision so it was spur of the moment
3: (laughs) gotcha yeah Yeah. took me a long time to learn the Raji so you know you might want to work on that you know, several times out here in Hermosa or Redondo.
1: Yeah. Trying not to bury too many tires. <laughs> yeah, probably in the middle of the night when not too many pedestrians are out.
0: So, can you talk about how, how that shot developed? I mean, did you do it one day and you're like, oh, I want to work on that? Or how did it come about?
3: I mean, I've always had a pretty good wrist away. Um, and I, I just, honestly, I started seeing it. Like, literally, it was like, oh, well, it, why are they not blocking it? So I kind of was just slapped it over there and then slapped it over there again. And just kind of every time they weren't anywhere near that spot. And even though they were on the line, it just seemed like it was there. Uh, and then I realized as I kind of developed, was developing it, I should say, that what they were seeing was that I was going to shoot the ball line. So instead of penetrating over and you know getting the left hand over the net so that they can stop it, they were going up high. And it was leaving me you know, a couple feet of court there to just slap that into. And literally that's probably how I would say it was developed. So now there's also, there's kind of two ones. There's that one and then there's the go up hard and just kind of wait, wait, wait until the blocker's hands have to come back and then slap it there. Uh, A little more risky because you can hit it in the net or hit it out. Um, Or if you're seven feet tall, you can just leave your hand right there and they get it anyways. Uh, but that's kind of how, I guess, it developed. I just saw it. It just seemed like it was really obvious to me, I guess. And so I just kept hitting it and then realized that it was a really effective weapon because guys were trying to block it and moving over. And then there was so much angle. I mean, I could hit the middle to the sharp angle and I could see the defender just going, okay, how am I supposed to get all of that? That's kind of how it developed. And I realized how important of a shot it was for me to develop or to open up the rest of my game.
2: And Todd, when you when you hit it, is it from the same point of contact that you would hit your normal shot and you just carve it, like you said, wrist away, or do you hit it more outside your body? Because I know like Hayden looks like he like dislocates his shoulder in
3: order to do his <laughs> version. Yeah, he he's extreme outside shoulder, uh, wrist away. No, it's, it's mostly the same, same spot, but it's more that, you know, doing that motion uh, from a high point rather than letting it drift out. But John also doesn't well, he rarely goes with a straight up-and-down set, if you think about it. He kind of lets that ball float a little bit, which is probably why he lets the ball just float past the blocker and then just slap it down.
1: Todd, who was the most unrodgiable blocker?
3: Uh, the, the two best that always gave me, honestly, gave me the, the worst trouble were always Ricardo um, from Brazil and uh, Kevin Wong. Kevin he used to block me really well from the left side. And I switched to the right, and he was clueless. And then, about I don't know, five years in, he just he figured it back out, figured me back out, and did a really good job of of blocking against me on the right. And Ricardo's style of blocking is different from most. He tends to be kind of extreme. He'll kind of just front you and then just go one way or the other and throw his hands to the left or to the right, both of them, uh, and that. That shot when he does that is, is tough to. I mean, if you if, if I see that he's doing that, it's an easy easy kill because you have the entire court to work with essentially, except one small little sliver. Uh, but generally speaking, those two guys were the two that I had the most trouble with on the world tour, and then domestically.
0: And in in the uh, let's say what was it six or seven years you and Phil played seven. So seven years that you and Phil played. What percentage of the time were you hitting the ball as hard as you could?
3: Maybe 20, 25, maybe.
0: That's interesting. Something like that. Yeah, because I feel like your approach was was built for chopping and shooting. Like the straight in, how slow you
2: started. And Todd, when you would come in and crush the ball, those 20%, was everything else the same, like your approach was normal and you just saw it and decided to hit? Or was it more like premeditated, hey, I haven't hit a ball in a while, I should probably you know, come in and keep him honest?
1: Did you guys lose, Todd? Yeah. Oh, it's getting good. Yeah. The oh, is we the, just lost this was the secret. whole the right grail of question. red side offense. Oh, no.
2: Fantastic. 20% of the time you come in and crush the ball, is that – predetermined like i need to keep them honest by coming in hit this time because i've been carving so much or is it same approach as normal you just see an opening and then decide in the air
3: same approach as normal see an opening decide you know okay it's right there i need to unload on this one only about 10 percent of the time would i actually think huh i'm shooting too much or i'm chopping too much i need to keep the defender or the
1: blocker honest or something like that so you're not coming in with like a little mental checklist of like i gotta hit this spot i gotta hit this spot You're not playing horse.
3: (laughs) No, I'm basically, I mean, for me, I always felt like, and a lot of people have said, hey, you should try this out. You should try this out. You should try this out. And my response back is, look, if if it's not working, it's because I'm not seeing what I should be seeing. Because if conceptually, if I'm passing well and getting a good set and I'm seeing what I'm seeing, like what I'm supposed to be seeing. There's nothing the other side should be able to do. And yeah, they may, be, they may guess or do something different or weird that may get me once or twice. But if, if everything's clicking as it should, doing what I should be doing, it doesn't matter. And this is what I've told other people, other coaches as well, it doesn't matter what, what you do. It'll still work because it's based upon information that's going in my brain that I'm deciding on, a shot, a hit, a slap shot, whatever it is, because it's open, there's open sand to that spot, sure, guys will make great plays. you know guy will take a step, make a credible layout dig, and I'm okay with that uh, so it, the reality is, is if you're using the vision correctly, your vision correctly, it, it should be relatively speaking unstoppable.
2: I think it's both a testament to your step close on how you can really gather and have power. Um, because I feel like when I come in and take a really good look, I slow down and I kind of lose that hit. I like the idea of every play, it's a blank slate. Or even though, though I've scored three times in a high line shot, I'm not taking it out of my repertoire just because I feel I do that a lot. Okay, eventually John's going to start moving to it. <laughs>
3: <laughs> He'll get my fifth line shot. <laughs> I, hear, I hear what you're saying on that front. Yeah, it's uh, I, I don't like to ever predetermine something.
0: I like that. Good message. So we're going to move on to a new topic before we do. Um, I know you're out there recruiting today, watching um, high school girls play, looking for players for your team. What do you see in the approaches at that level? What does it look like?
3: Very few kids are use their vision. Uh, there's only a handful. Most of them tend to be smaller uh, and kind of forced into using it because they have to, they're not the big hammer. Uh, a lot and I guess this will just, this will slowly change as we move forward. A lot of still indoor approaches, Uh, girls coming in and not, I mean, we're in Hermosa, deep sand. You kind of got to do more vertical approach and they're coming in and and broad jumping a ton. I mean, the girls game is a little bit different. Uh, Most of the girls, with the exception of only a handful of them, are going to be able to hit the ball and just blow a defender up consistently. Uh, I feel like, their ball control is better than guys. ball. You know, Women's ball control in general, in my opinion, is better than, than guys. Uh, and that's no different at that junior's level. But the ability to hit the ball 60-plus miles per hour is just very rare in a girl to be able to hit that. Whereas guys, generally speaking, can hit around that speed at their hardest. So I can blow you up, John, or you can blow me up off of your gnarliest hit and know that, okay, he's not going to dig it that often. I just have to worry about the block on the women's side of the game. That changes a lot. You'd really have to move it around. So the ability to have vision, which I think someone like a Misty has amazing vision can absolutely hammer the ball, but would prefer to just put it where you're not because she can, and she sees where you are.
0: A lot of what I see out there is that the set dictates what they do. And I think it's because they miss out on that pre approach approach whatever that means. But they so they they pass the ball and they just kind of go. They just start running somewhere instead of passing the ball and moving with wherever the this their setter is and then approaching. I don't know if club coaches aren't teaching that or or what, but I'd like to see more of that. So girls can hit or shoot instead of, well, this play I have to shoot because I passed it there, etc.
3: One of there's, you know, different coaching philosophies on that obviously, but one of the people that you know, we all know Jen Pavley, she uh, coaches Valley girls. Actually, if you watch all of her girls, they are very, very good at come to a stop. Yeah. They come to a, you know, I don't know about coming to a complete stop. Um, I rarely come to a complete stop, but you know, you, have slowed down quite a bit. Uh, so all of her gr- gals definitely work hard to do that pre stuff, the pre footwork, uh, yeah, and then move their, their feet.
0: Yeah. And it stands out cause not too many people are doing that.
3: No, most of them are just flowing into the, wherever the pass is, and they're flowing into the play.
0: Yeah. So we were going to transition into um, a new topic, your approach to the game. See what I did there? So I know you're really big on uh, pregame routines. I think you have the same warm-up you do every time. If I think Phil told us that. Can you take us through what you do and how important that is to your preparation?
3: Yeah, I just kind of developed one that uh, it's not exactly the same because it is predicated on how hot or cold it is outside. So if it's really hot, I'll shorten it to 50% of it. If it's super cold, I will lengthen it a little bit longer. But generally speaking, I literally do at the end of the court, 10 nice, easy, slow jogs with the first step being a little, trying to be a little bit more explosive from facing the net and then going to my right and then facing the net and going back to my left. Do 10 of those. Then I kind of Slide step easily four times, there back, there back, and then uh, do eight little bit more aggressive, slow sprints, if you will. Um, Same style with facing the net, going right to left. Then I'll do four um, karaoke or grapevines, crossovers, whatever you want to call those, back and forth. Then six of those little sprints, but really trying to be explosive on that first step. Um, I work on a very specific first step and then, uh, what high knees and then kickbacks or vice versa. And then I'll do four super aggressive sprints. So yeah, I'd say that's pretty anal retentive. <laughs> <laughs> it says a lot about you.
2: Is that first step the crossover step or what's your move?
3: Yeah. First, I, I, I did a lot of work with a trainer, um, who was a track guy. Uh, and was at UCSB, was ten five hundred meter sprinter, um, so super fast, and had done a lot of movement stuff, and was a had his uh, masters in kinesiology, and I mean he understood how to move. And we went down to the beach, and we had a stopwatch, and we did all kinds of movements, taking you know crossover step or first step, being you know the if I'm going to my right, moving with my right foot first and just timing it, seeing how far I could get one and then how long it took two uh, and just kind of figuring out which one was quickest. And we came to the conclusion that, you know, if I'm in the angle digging, that with one crossover step and a leap, either way I can not get to the line uh, all the way but get pretty dang close uh, and cover a lot more court.
0: So then how would you handle you know, the, the couple situations where maybe the match, you know, ends up being faster than you thought it would or the shuttle from your hotel in Rome takes, you know, hits a bunch of traffic and you can't get that whole thing in. So, you know, whatever, the situation is out of your control where you have to be ready quicker. How do you handle that? Does that mess you up is it throw you for a loop?
3: No, not really. I mean, uh, I mean, there are times where I've literally just gotten on the court and been, all right, we got 10 minutes. Let's uh, let's just set the ball back and forth 10 times and let's go and swing at some balls and we're going to have to use the beginning of the game as a bit of a warm-up, just the way it is. The Brady
1: Halverson approach.
2: <laughs> I feel like when you played me and Brady, it would be show up two minutes before the game and just smoke us.
1: <laughs> what? I don't recall that, Billy. <laughs> I, got,
2: I got this. <laughs> yeah.
0: We'll sh- we'll show up after it's
3: 4-0. Go Billy, ahead. if you... Uh... If you remember the last time we played you and Brady? No. Florida?
2: Did Brady not show up?
3: <laughs> I guess that's all relative, but uh, Brady showed up, but he was uh, physically a little bit more than what Brady was the year before. He was packing a few LBs on there. He, he was dying, man. You remember that? He was absolutely, I felt bad for him. He was dying.
2: I think he, uh, he retired a couple years before he retired. Yes,
3: <laughs> one of those. He's up in my neck of the woods now.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah, careful what you say here, Todd. He's
2: doing some coaching on the indoor high school team. Slow high. Uh,
3: yeah, slow high.
2: Scary. So then uh, what about your, uh,
0: your mental prep, your mental approach? Do you have something as regimented or do you do stuff off the court? Pre-game? Yeah, pre-game or even like outside of, I don't know, visualization or any any of that sort of mental stuff.
3: Uh, Pre-game, no. However, uh, I've always been a little bit odd in that I... uh, Ever since I can remember, even as a little kid, I daydream a lot. And I daydream in literally scenarios. So I will literally put myself in a 12-all scenario versus name it. Uh, And then literally... As I'm just laying down, this is actually how I go to sleep every night. Well, not every night, but almost every night. Just literally thinking through scenarios on on the court. Uh I, I dug this, where does it go? Where is it? I found that most people do not do that because I've I've grown up doing it all the time. So it's something that I've just kind of it is who I am and what I do. It it's normal for me. Whereas when I talk about it, most people look at me like I'm crazy. They literally people look at me like, dude, that's weird. I'm like, well, uh, okay, I I guess it is, but it's worked for me well because I've found myself in a lot of similar scenarios that I've gone over in my brain.
2: When you're doing those daydreams with that visualization, is it all like positive, like this is how I'm scoring? Or do you put yourself in negative situations too?
3: Uh, All of the above, actually. It will be, yes, I'm scoring. It will be, uh, I'm in the weeds and I've given up three or four points. What am I going to do? And it's literally, sometimes it gets to the nitty gritty. Like I'm literally visualizing myself passing, setting, swinging, serving, diving, um, whatever it is on that front. And honestly, a lot of the, a lot of them are, I'm down. I'm down 12-10. Uh, what am I going to do? And I actually, <laughs> I've now started to do that in the coaching realm. I actually am sitting there going, okay, I'm coaching my number ones team against... You know John's number one's team we're down twelve ten can I help affect that game as a coach and give them a strategy and I'll throw out different you know things that the other team is doing whether that's siding out or trying to stop us uh, serving strategy just trying to think through different scenario potential scenarios
0: and how how specific is it like are you imagining a certain like the courts at Manhattan beach playing against a specific team is it is it that specific?
3: Playing against a specific team, absolutely. As far as where we are, no. I don't think I've ever actually said I'm in Klagenfurt, Austria, playing whoever. It's always just a random court, and I'm literally just playing, making the plays.
0: Do you experience like deja vu then when you're actually playing? You're like, oh, I've experienced this before. Like This was my vision last night. Do you have any of that?
3: <laughs> no, I haven't gotten to that... Uh, my, my, brain, my head's not big enough i guess i, I need <laughs> to get more more brains yeah no jedi mind tricks or anything like that um, i i felt like kind of i've been in this situation before in terms of say a score or something like that scores 8 10 or some somewhere in that frame um but as far as wow i served that ball and they passed it like i saw set it like i saw hit it like i saw i dug it no i haven't actually or if i have it i haven't it hasn't clicked
0: yeah it's interesting so when uh when you and phil were on your guys' incredible run what did it feel like what did the practices look like give us a feel of you know what you guys went through
3: um well one obviously it felt really good um I can imagine <laughs> it, it you know what to be honest with you at that point in time we were barely even practicing because we were getting so many matches over the course of three or four days, depending on you know domestic or international tournament, we usually had more, much more of a focus on the weight room, uh, getting our track workout or our beach workout, our plyometric workout in. Uh, and usually we would literally do one day in the sand, unless we had set up with another team, it was probably an hour and a half of almost a serve and pass type thing or, or something that we wanted to work on from the last weekend that we went down there and focused on. You know, cutting the ball or a high line shot or whatever it was. And when we were really on, it, it was just weird. It was almost, you just walk out on the court and we play crappy and we still win and we're kind of going, how do we just win that game? And you look back and you're like, I'm not quite sure. It seemed like they just gave it to us. Uh, there was a lot of weird scenarios, especially in 2010 when we won a bunch of tournaments. And I remember looking back and thinking, God, we didn't even deserve to win half those tournaments. But we somehow pulled out some crazy matches and won. And in my opinion, and this is you see this in all sports, it starts to kind of snowball, uh, whether it's positive or negative. But it snowballs and creates this, just got to get out on the court and, and play and the rest will take care of itself because you're winning everything. Or, you know, the converse to that is you're really struggling. So how do you change that and stop that snowball effect from losing over and over again?
0: So during that run, when you're walking out to the court, you just feel like invincible. Like, did it feel like we, we can't be beat, or were there doubts still?
3: No, uh, there was no. If I I remember, we talked about it a lot. I felt like if we played our A plus game after two thousand seven, we weren't going to lose. There there literally was no one in the world that could beat us if we played our A plus game. No one, no matter if they played their A plus game, we had the best A plus game. That period, end of discussion. However, we obviously did not play A plus all the time. That would be pretty much physically impossible to do so. Uh, so it was a matter of trying to play as close as you can as that. Um, obviously, our A game and our A- game is going to win us a lot of uh, matches during that time frame. But, yeah, it was if we walked out on the court, I knew that if we played our best, we were not going to lose. didn't matter what the other team did.
0: It's got to feel good.
3: Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, when you—you you, no matter what they do, there's nothing they can do to beat you when you play your best. Yeah, it's, it makes the game a lot simpler.
1: Todd, what was it like when an entire tournament field is game planning, not just against you and Phil, but you. Like, what percentage of serves were you seeing during a tournament in Stad? Generally
3: speaking, I'd say 90 to 95%. Yeah. Um, and it was, a, it was a really interesting... When I was thinking about, you know, asking Phil to play in 2000, late 2005, one of the things I discussed with my wife was, well this is going to be a huge change. I was playing with Sean Scott at the time. He was getting 90% of the serves. I was basically the setter, the p- guy to try and dig as many balls as I could to create points, etc. And I, I remember telling my wife, well, I gotta, I'm got to. i going to have to be in the best shape of my life because I'm going to get every freaking serve. Uh, no one's going to serve Phil a whole lot of balls. There's just not that many blockers that could actually get up to the point where he was to be able to slow him down. Uh, and... I actually had that conversation with my wife, debating with her, "Do I do this? Like, do I want to put myself through that much? like <laughs> What's going to amount to torture over the years?" Uh, and you know, ultimately, I made obviously made the decision to go with Phil and know I'm going to get every every ball, uh, and that was I accepted that, and it ended up working out great. And when we actually struggled, was when teams started to serve Phil a little bit more. And I think what it did was not because Phil was not siding out well, but I was getting in incredible rhythms. I mean, unbelievable, where I just felt like, like we were describing before with the vision, I I, I had options, which option did I want to take? Not, oh, I see one thing, I'm going to take it. It was, do I want a high line shot? Do I want to chop it off sharp? Do I want to blow up the digger? Uh, Literally those, those perspectives. Uh, and then all of a sudden you start serving Phil every once in a blue moon, three or four, or, and if he gives up some points bonus, that I saw, thought more than anything
1: else kind of got us out of our rhythm, or yeah. me at least. I'm just imagining like every other team and coach trading strategies and tactics against you. And I think that's what makes that streak and that those seasons so mind boggling, just that everyone's out to get you. Like, you're not just getting through every now and then.
0: And what were some of the craziest strategies you saw people throw at you?
3: I mean, one of the ones that, like, Jeff Alzina always did with Stein and and Lambeau uh, was serve me short and try and pin me um, to my right side against the pin and then have Stein just kind of sit in that sharp angle and Lambeau be big and gnarly uh, on the line trying to touch my line shot. I remember in Chicago... um, we were playing against them, I can't remember, it was semis, finals, or maybe quarterfinals, something like that, and they were doing that, and Phil's like, well, what do, we, what do we want to do here? And, you know, you're giving. Up, I was giving up some points, and I remember saying to him, look, they're, they're just serving me to my pin, I kind of need to work on my pin game, um, so let's just leave it at that. If we need to, I'll pass you to the middle, and I'll come into the middle, and I'll just side out from there. So I, I kind of looked at it as opportunities to to get better at something that I needed to get better, and... They were giving me that opportunity by serving me short and arguably, you know, prob- probably the, the best or second best team at that point in time. So it was would be a very good test.
2: Well, it's
0: cool. You saw it as a challenge that's especially in I could see that in practice, but to be able to do that in tournament play and embrace that, that's, that's pretty cool.
2: So when you played with Dax and when you first were playing on tour, you were on the left side. Do you think you would have been as successful or as dominant as you were um, on the left? Or do you think the right side just suited your game more?
3: I think the court changed. And that was the biggest piece. Um, I was on the left side. I could chop that angle off pretty hard. And that opened up the rest of my game. And then when the court shrunk, you know, Dax and I, we created and crafted a... Offense that would be effective against a bigger blocker. A lot of movement. You know, he's lefty. I'm righty. So we can both hit on two. We were both setters. We could both jump set, uh, fake like we're going to hit, and then shoot a ball to the pin or back set or whatever it was. Uh, and it was mildly successful, but it was predicated upon passing really well. And at that point in time, no one was really serving that tough in that first year or two. And we only played one year while in the short court, 2001, and it worked. It worked decently. As long as we passed. But as soon as we were out of system, then all of a sudden it's high ball. And it was just hard to side out against those guys that were getting bigger and bigger and better and better blockers.
0: So if Phil and you had played and Phil's on the right and you're on the left, do you guys win a gold medal? Do you guys have the run you have?
3: I don't, not, no, not at that point in time. Yeah, I, I don't think so. I, I just don't think we were going to be near as good. Phil's, Ability to hit on two was always a, something that people had to account for and strategize against. Uh, and I had the ability to put it up there. Uh, and we only tried to use it you know, when we were really clicking one, two, three times a game in serve-receive. Uh, I like to use it a lot uh, when I dig a ball uh, because I think it's a great option with a guy that's 6'9", long arms and jumps really well. Uh, it's a quicker play that the defense can't, or it's difficult to account for in defense. If you put him on the right, all of a sudden that kind of limits that a lot. And I just don't—I honestly just don't think I would have sided out as well on the left.
2: And speaking of uh, big court, small court, there's always debate on old school, new school players. And having played against both, um, how would you think guys like Phil and Bruno would do in a big court? How would Sinjin and Randy do in today's game? And then after that, I'd like to hear your top three players of both eras, not counting you.
3: I think Bruno would have been awesome on the old court flat out. Awesome. Uh, there were, he's short six foot, but I mean, I'm a, you know, six, two in heels. And I was one of the, I wouldn't say I was a small player. I would say I was a medium to slightly bigger than medium in the old school game. I mean, Randy at six, four was a beast. I mean, I was a big dude out there. Granted, he's a very big man. Uh, Whitmarsh was a freak of nature. You know, no one else was six, seven and could play. All the six, seven guys—they just couldn't pass. Uh, Phil, Phil probably would have developed into a similar player as Witty, uh, more polished because he's—he actually grew up playing the game, whereas Witty just kind of got into it late. But he's—he's he's that kind of an athlete that he would be able to play. Would he have as much success? I do not think so. Uh, the game was—it uh, wasn't about blocking. You know, you, your primary ways of scoring were serving, defense and then blocking. And part of that defense was being able to peel and dig balls uh, and make the other team put that ball away. Nowadays, it's block, serve, and then defense last. In my, at least those are in my opinion. Uh, so you're taking Phil's biggest weapon, which is, in my opinion, the block. He's got a great weapon in his jump serve and would have scored a lot of points. However, he also would have been jump serving against probably smaller guys, that are going to be quicker and more able to cover more court dive and actually be able to pass the ball well. And even though the ball is maybe out of system, you throw up a bump set from five, you know, four or five feet off the net, you can still go up and rip the snot out of that thing. Cause the court's so, so big, you can still hit sharp angle. Nowadays, I mean, there's a handful of guys that can hit sharp angle, but I don't know about you guys, but I can't hit from five feet off the net and wrap a ball on the 10 foot line in the angle, unless I'm 10 feet outside the antenna. So Uh, that's kind of my thought process. Sinjin and Randy. um, Sinjin played a little bit on the new school game. I think Sinjin would have been fine. Uh, Randy, that would have been an interesting one. Um, Could Randy have been the big, big time blocker? I don't think so. Not like he was. I mean, his game was polished. He could drop, he could dig, he could do all the little things. I mean, I could, I could actually have seen Randy becoming a defensive player and, and being a pretty damn good one. Um, but in that old school era, he was better off as a big time blocker, but also a guy that could bomb jump serves, drop, dig transition. I mean, you really, in the old school game, other than Mike Whitmarsh, Rob Hyder, that's like literally all I can think of. You're really playing with one smaller defender for the most part and one bigger defender. It's just the bigger defender was the quote unquote blocker.
0: So then who's your top three?
3: Ah, uh, let's see. Cart. Emmanuel. Oh, I guess you got Emmanuel is a tough one. Are we going domestic or international? International. <sighs> um, so we're going worldwide. Yeah. Karch, old school. Um, I would say Karch, Sinjin, Randy, and Kent. I would go with four, actually, uh, because realize Kent retired at like 30 or 29 or something like that uh, and had 100 and some odd victories. So you start doing the math on that and you go, that guy could have ended up maybe winning 200 events. So, uh, But he didn't play nearly as long as any of those other three for sure. With Emmanuel, I could actually put him in both categories. I could put him old school because he was gnarly old school. And new school, obviously, won a gold medal and a bronze and a silver. Uh, so you could kind of go both ways with him. Although he, like me, only played a much shorter time on the old school. But his jump serve was insane. I mean, he was a a very legit old school player, uh, just as much as he was a new school player. Uh, New school, then Phil, uh, for sure. Uh, And Ricardo from 2001 to 2010, or so. I think he was amazing. I really do. I mean, the guy has unreal ball control. A absolutely insane wrist i mean casey patterson like wrist could go either way his last couple years stopped setting the ball with his hands but used to have unreal hands i mean he played with a guy in old school zamarco he set every ball with his hands every ball period he was arguably the best could at one point in time in his career could have made a good argument to be the best blocker best setter and best hitter and maybe even best server during his career which there's not a whole lot of guys that you can actually name that. I don't know that I'd give him best passer, but he was up there.
0: We didn't make the list, Billy.
3: <laughs> it's holding my breath. You guys are still puppies. You're, you know, you got so yeah. much more time in front of you, so yeah. I, I can't put yeah. you out there yet.
1: Yeah, thanks for that. Todd, I've got a call-in question from Mr. Sean S. from Hawaii. He's wondering... How did you continue to play against Child and Heese after throwing up in the middle of the court? (laughs) It's a two-part question. He actually answers it and just said that uh, he had to clean it up with a shovel in the middle of the game. Was he really one of the? you got to ask him back.
3: Was he really? Okay, ask him this. Where was that tournament? If you have the ability to ask him back. Um, That was... Had to be China. Nope. Nope. Uh, uh we'll just go into it it was actually brazil um salvador it was not on the beach it was off the beach it was hellaciously hot uh it, it was absolutely brutal and yeah we were playing child's adhes they're serving me every ball they side out like gods we're siding out well it's i don't remember the score but like seven all he thinks it was um, in sao paulo it was not in sao paulo it was actually <laughs> in salvador <laughs> There's only one time I've ever played in Sao Paulo and it was an exhibition. That's how I know actually. <laughs> um, so no, actually they were serve, that's right, they were serving Sean every ball. And I was not feeling well. Literally I <laughs> we lined up to serve receive and I just unloaded everything in my belly all over the my you know the court right there. Obviously a medical timeout, not taken by me, even taken by the referee. I go, I sit down, and when I came back out, they had been serving Sean, and they were ahead. And then they started serving me every ball, and I felt great. (laughs) And I sided out every ball, and I remember both of them coming up to me an hour later, and they're like, man, why did we start serving you? I was like, I don't know, but I felt really, really good after I threw up. You should have kept serving Sean. You you guys were getting points off him.
1: Not a lot, but enough to be in the lead. So this is what you tell your Cal Poly kids. If your partner's just wearing it and getting served. Throw up. Yeah, Sean <laughs> said it was a smart play by you. It was well thought out. Yeah, it was, it was
3: premeditated. And yeah, he didn't have to clean it up. That would have been even really <laughs> better, though.
2: Uh, I've heard you have a book on every player, whether it's like a physical notebook or in your head, whatever. Uh, without being too mean, can you give some scouting reports on me and Mare?
3: Uh, your extreme crossbody. Um, Doesn't matter which side. Johnny's been hitting the weights because he's hammering the ball right now. He is, too, wants to go cross body, but I I would guess, and maybe you've worked on this, John, in the last year, year and a half, two years, you've really worked on hitting that angle. Like, really, really, because it used to be way more cross body chopping that thing over the top of the block um, or a little, what's that little shot you do uh, up and over the top? The sissy. Crappy line shot. (laughs) The Uh... sissy. I like the sissy better. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Let's see. What else? Uh, Always wondered why Billy never used his hands. And finally, now he's using them again.
0: Yeah, Billy. Yeah.
3: Yeah. You put him away, huh? For a little while, just bring him out later on. I mean, that's the basics right there. Do you feel like going
2: into most matches, you have an idea of your opponents and you've kind of thought out all your strategies?
3: Yes, but I always ask my partner, what do you want to do here before I say anything? And override them.
2: Before you say the right answer.
3: If (laughs) necessary. You know what? Actually, what I found is with Phil, I would always do that. And most of the time I'd be like, oh, okay, I I like that, but let's try this instead. Uh, And then all of a sudden within uh, two or three years, he was literally saying uh, exactly what I would, not exact verbiage, but. Exactly what I would have said. And I went, wow, he gets it now. He sees it all. He's, he's telling me exactly the same strategy that I would have used if I were the first one to have spoken about where our strategic plan was. It was kind of fun. It was, it was good, good for me as a coach or my coaching brain, I guess you could say, to see that and see that he's actually gotten it. And now that's what I basically do with all of my girls. I'll be like, hey, what do you guys think? Before, you know, obviously I already have a, it broken down on a piece of paper, but I'll ask them, what do you guys think you want to do here? What's going to be important? What do they want to do against you? What do you want? Especially if we've played them before. Uh, and we'll, so we'll do that within practices. Hey, I want you to give me a scouting report on that team. What are you going to do? And why are you going to do it? And then just, you know, you're giving them a little mini quiz and, and then afterwards, yep, that was a good strategy or this is what I would have done differently.
0: Awesome. Good stuff. So this, I don't know if you've officially, I think you've sort of officially announced that this is your last year of playing, correct? Yes. Anything you wish you would have done differently or any regrets from your 20 years of playing or whatever it was?
3: Um, yeah, I definitely. Um, being um, an a-hole to some of my partners on the court. Um, I actually saw a young lady today who I have a tremendous amount of respect for her game, who, uh, was treating her partner very poorly and I just literally was sitting there laughing to myself going, huh, that looks exactly like I was for a long time (laughs) (laughs) and actually went up to her afterwards and told her, Hey, you know, with her parents permission, you ought to really think rethink this. I'm telling you this as it took me 30 some odd years to figure this out and you're whatever, 17, try and figure this out quicker rather than later. See, that's one of my biggest regrets. And part of the way that helped me change it actually was actually my wife told me, like, you were a you a total jerk on the court. And I kind of tried to work on that. It's still, you know, it comes out there still. Um, and try not to be bitter. This year it's been, for the most part, a little bit easier because it's the last one and it's just fun. But that's probably my biggest regret is not being a little bit better of a teammate.
0: And do you think that was helpful in your career like do you think that was like having that edge was that a part of you or so
3: so having the edge absolutely for me treating my partner when they're struggling to side out or not doing what i think they need to be doing that hurt that hurt the game uh, because I mean, in reality you guys all know you're a team there's only two mm-hmm. of you out there and there ain't no subs so yeah. if you're throwing your teammate under the bus chances are i mean there's only one guy put it this way there's only one guy i've ever played with that you wanted to throw him under the bus to be able to play better. And that was actually in college. guy named, you probably you guys probably won't know him, Amadi Velasco from Puerto Rico. Classic guy. And if you told him how great he was playing, he would play, he would just go in the weeds. He'd start sucking. But if you told him how much he sucked and yelled and screamed at him, he would absolutely just go bananas. Uh, I was a freshman of the year, our freshman campaign and whatnot. So that's the only guy I've ever met that, you're better off telling him how bad he is and he's horrible and he's got to start picking up his jock and whatnot. Everyone else I found you're better off with. You can push as you should at certainly our level, but you still need a pat on the on the back and some uplifting when you're in the weeds.
0: Yeah, that's cool. Thanks for uh, sharing that. And then I guess the last thing is things that you'll miss from playing. It's been a big part of your identity for a long time. So Next year, what what you miss the most?
3: Uh, I think a couple of things. One, um, the camaraderie in the tent, uh, just amongst you know the guys over the years. It's changed every every year, and certainly generationally, it's changed as far as you know w- what's going on in the tent, who's there, um, the interests and whatnot. But that's always a fun piece of it is just sitting down and chatting with someone about, hey, what'd you do this off season? You know, how are? Sometimes it's like you you watch them literally grow. From a wild, out-of-control 22, 23, 24-year-old to a married guy to having kids and, you know.
1: You're talking about John. <laughs>
3: <laughs> it's wild. I, I didn't want to say names. Okay, <laughs> yeah, I want to leave yeah. it completely out of control. <laughs> yeah, those player, player parties. <laughs> um, so that I'll, I'll miss that. Obviously, I'll miss the competition. I can get that within the coaching. But this has been a, a four-year process for me. Uh, and so it's been slowly building to this point. So it's not like it's a, not like I'm a chain smoker and I'm trying to cut it. Boom! I pack going with five packs a day to zero siggies a day. It's okay. This has slowly been a process over the four years, and I'm completely at peace with it, and and stoked to be moving on and into my different ventures, uh, whatever those may be.
0: I think a lot of people would be happy to be retiring with what uh, you've done in our sport. So I don't thank think you. you're. Thank you. It's been uh, been fun. To watch you and to try to figure out how to stop you unsuccessfully for a long time. But I think you pushed us all as uh, defenders and, you know, Billy and I here as right side defenders to, to want to be better and it's fun to, to be a part of that.
2: Thank you. Oh, cool. Especially when I was switched to the right, I don't feel like there's anybody I watched more on YouTube than than you and try to study and try to pick up something from what you can do. So, I don't know, really, really respect your game and have loved watching you play.
3: Oh, I appreciate that. Thank you, Billy.
0: I always felt like I c- I couldn't do what he could do, so I didn't watch him that much.
2: I was <laughs> like oh, Todd's way too good. Let me find some- You're modeling off Phil.
3: Well, guys, I appreciate it. Thank you, Andrew, Billy, John. Thanks, you, Todd.
1: Uh- Thanks, Todd.